Recent news has been awash with reporting of the failed drawdown and defeat of the Afghanistan war, with many in government and the media pointing fingers. With all the factions in the war, and that it's been the longest war in American history, it's easy to get lost in all of the noise. However, we'll point out just how simple this subject really is in today's episode of Analysis Behind the News, where we provide the perspective and the plan to help restore American liberty and independence. When looking at the U.S.-Afghan war, it's important to look at all countries, and not just the Middle East, in context of a much bigger war, of which can be seen, but takes a little bit of effort, especially in the way that we view world events. One person who managed to bring some clarity to this was American businessman Robert Welch. On the opening day of the founding meeting of the John Birch Society in December of 1958, Mr. Welch said, Our immediate and most urgent anxiety, of course, is the threat of the communist conspiracy, and well it should be. For both internationally and within the United States, the communists are much further advanced and more deeply entrenched than is realized by even most of the serious students of the danger among the anti-communists. He also said, the Cold War in which we are engaged is certainly no game. It is a fatal struggle for freedom against slavery, for existence against destruction. Keep in mind that this was 1958. While many will suggest the Cold War is over, given the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, one merely need to look around to see that communists use that as a smokescreen. As Mr. Welch would suggest, let's look at the score of this fatal struggle for freedom against slavery. Mr. Welch pointed out that the communist plan was to take over Eastern Europe, then Asia, and finally to encircle the United States so that it could fall into their hands like an overripe fruit. In his presentation, he showed how Eastern Europe had been conquered by 1950, so he turned his attention to the second part of the plan, the masses of Asia. He said, And those dependencies in Asia, where the rulership already belongs de facto, in whole or in large part to Moscow, or Indonesia, Burma, India, Ceylon, Afghanistan, Syria, probably South Vietnam, and now Iraq and Lebanon. Now actually, the anti-communist position is crumbling so rapidly everywhere in Asia that it is impossible to keep these notes up to date. If you will look at a map of Asia with these countries properly shaded, I think you will agree with me in my estimate of the communists' progress. It is that they have already gone three-fourths of the way towards the completion of the second step in their three-part program. Indeed, Leon Trotsky wrote on August 5, 1919, the road to Paris and London lies through the towns of Afghanistan, the Punjab, and Bengal. Since that time, the advances of communism have only gotten more rapid. Given its close proximity to both Russia and China, Afghanistan has been a target by the communists for quite some time. The political history of this country is riddled with assassinations and violent takeovers. One man who experienced communist infiltration and eventually the communist genocide that would take root in the country was Abdul Shams. He was an economic advisor to the president of Afghanistan. In his book detailing the communist conquest of Afghanistan called In Cold Blood, he wrote, The communists have a purpose, world dominion, and they have a plan, victory, without war, if possible, but at any cost. Until the free peoples of the world recognize that the communists are deadly serious, they will continue to suffer defeat after defeat. By the time the Soviets took 
occupation of Afghanistan in 1979, both countries were integral trading partners. In fact, the Soviet Union was executing a plan to make an independent Afghanistan more and more dependent upon Moscow. As Mr. Shams point, pointed out in his book, agreements with the Soviet Union were quickly entangling the two countries. Agreements were made on border control, 1958, telecommunications, road building, bridge building, hydroelectric power in 1959, cultural exchange, river port construction, press service exchange in 1960, and housing construction in Kabul, 1962, and many more. With these agreements came thousands of Soviet advisors who oversaw the work and closely worked with Afghan officials. According to Mr. Shams, thousands of Afghans went to the Soviet Union for training. Between 1950 and 1960, Mr. Shams continues, Afghanistan had become heavily dependent on the Soviet Union, 100% for armaments, 90% for petroleum and petroleum products, and nearly 50% for all international trade. The Soviet Union was following a classic communist conquest strategy of overtaking the economic, political, and military systems of a country all through entangling alliances done through trade, loans, and false friendship. As Mr. Shams pointed out, thousands of Afghan military officers and university students have studied in the USSR and the Soviets partially financed and heavily influenced the Afghan educational system. The communists also operated six fake news outlets in 1966, helping to create several communist factions that frequently clashed until 1977 when the Soviets helped them organize into one group that seized power in 1978. So at this point, let's take a step back and as armchair historians recognize that it's easy to see what the, what the Soviet Union was doing. Its goals were not hard to figure out. Yet, at this point, what was the United States doing? Was it exposing the treachery that was being brought upon the Afghan people? No, as Mr. Shams documented, U.S. foreign policy in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s contributed to making the Soviet conquest of Afghanistan successful. For example, when the Red Army came into Afghanistan to take it over in late 1979, and early 1980, it drove vehicles and equipment over roads and bridges that it had helped to build to connect both countries. In fact, both Americans and Soviets built a network of roads throughout Afghanistan in the 1950s and 1960s. According to Mr. Shams, between 1961 and 1967, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers supervised the construction of more than 500 miles of roads in Afghanistan funded by the U.S. Agency for International Development. This cost the U.S. taxpayers $80 million. When the Soviets invaded, Mr. Shams indicated they had five major points of strategy. One, to capture Afghanistan's economic centers. Two, to remove uncooperative populations, which as of 1987 had killed 1.2 million Afghans and displaced 5.5 million Afghan refugees into Pakistan and Iran. Three, to develop a new pro-Soviet ruling class. Four, to isolate Afghanistan to prevent supplies from reaching freedom fighters and to prevent news about Soviet atrocities from being leaked. And five, to exploit tribal antagonisms to extend Soviet hegemony into Pakistan and Iran. Does any of this look familiar to what is now going on with the Taliban? Axios.com 
mapped out the provincial capitals the Taliban captured during its lightning offensive that saw the seizing of more than half of the Afghan capitals in just a week. These capitals are the economic centers of Afghanistan. With as fast as the once U.S. propped up Afghan government is folding, it will only be a matter of time until the Taliban controls the entire country. Regarding the second point of removing uncooperative populations, Soviet airstrikes bombed 14,000 of the then 25,000 existing villages. Soviet soldiers then liquidated village after village. The Soviets also introduced a secret police and a security police to maintain control of the urban populations. This was intended to eliminate opposition to the Soviet regime. It created a holocaust targeting men, women, and children that murdered, killed, tortured, and raped them as mass murder and terrorism are the communist primary methods of operation in controlling populations. Mr. Shams's book details example after example of eyewitness accounts. News reports from Afghanistan today detail that the Taliban is going door to door looking for those who have worked with the U.S. government and exterminating them, even though their official spokesmen are telling the press that they are extending amnesty to those who fought against them in these last 20 years. In point three of creating a new Soviet ruling class, the Soviets sought out and killed many community leaders, as well as those that had higher education. For example, Mr. Shams wrote in his book that in the first seven years of Soviet occupation, 80% of the Afghan teachers have been executed, imprisoned, or forced to flee the country. The Soviets have taken great pains to eliminate any intellectual opposition to their rule. He describes how all the school textbooks were changed to fit the communist agenda while every school was outfitted with a so-called friendship room that was well-stocked with Soviet newspapers and books. The Taliban have already said they will be returning to the days of pre-9-11 rule. Do you think any cultural progress that was made while they were not in power will now be tolerated? Expect to see murders and tortures rise all over again just to keep the people compliant. Mr. Shams's book concluded with a plea in a change of direction in the way America deals with Afghanistan. He mentioned that American aid had gone to Afghanistan in the 1950s and 1960s, and the major result was speeding the occupation of Afghanistan by the Red Army. Obviously, America's leaders ignored the advice as aid has continuously flowed through the country helping to aid and equip the most radical elements of Afghanistan society, including the Taliban. According to the New American, former Representative Ron Paul pointed out 20 years ago that American tax dollars helped to create the very Taliban government that now wants to destroy us. In the late 1970s and early 80s, the CIA was very involved in the training and funding of various fundamentalist Islamic groups in Afghanistan, some of which later became today's brutal Taliban government. In fact, the U.S. government admits to giving the groups at least $6 billion in military aid and weaponry, a staggering sum that would be even larger in today's dollars. Our foolish funding of Afghan terrorists hardly ended in the 1980s, however. Millions of your tax dollars continue to pour into Afghanistan even today. The New American, affiliated with the John Birch Society, exposed this 
in an issue of its magazine in October 1998, three years before the terrorist attacks of 9-11. We reported back then that Islamic fundalism was a contrived global threat being pushed by the Council on Foreign Relations operatives in government and media. Now, with the chaotic and irresponsible premature pullout of American troops, billions of dollars of American military equipment and weapons are now in the hands of those enemies that America has helped to train and inflame. State-run media in Communist China celebrated when America was attacked on 9-11, and last week it ran articles welcoming the Taliban, reveling in America's loss in, Af in Afghanistan. Russia and China both indicated they planned to keep open their embassies in Kabul, while America was scrambling to evacuate ours. That should give you a clue as to the type of war we are in. Folks, it's very simple. As Mr. Welch once described, we are in a fatal struggle for freedom against slavery in all countries. Every country is being attacked to be used as a pawn by elites toward building a new world order, as its supporters call it. This order is to be governed under a world government as run by unaccountable bureaucrats intent on controlling all that you do. Please don't ever say that it cannot happen here. There are already initiatives being put to work here in America that coincide along with the five major Soviet strategy points that were employed in Afghanistan, including one, to capture economic centers. The United Nations Agenda 21-2030 is being used to elevate radical environmental initiatives that will displace many rural Americans and force them into urban centers where they can be better controlled. These cities will be tightly controlled with regulations on what you can and cannot do and consume. To remove uncooperative populations, that's the second one, in addition to Agenda 21-2030, the disarming of the American population, the censorship of anything pro-American or truthful that goes against the government narrative and the disruption of business, worship, and travel under the guise of a feared virus makes the people much more docile to follow instructions. Given the push for re-education through critical race theory and the 1619 Project, and not to mention the widespread COVID lies, it's just a matter of time before undesirables are removed, one way or another. Three, to develop a new pro-Soviet ruling class, the federal government continues to position itself to create winners and losers throughout the American industry. The quick solidification of woke companies will continue to drive out those who work against the woke movement. These types of woke big government advocates in the federal government are currently using its full force to create the type of bureaucracy it wants to see implementing its globalist agenda. Four, to isolate the country by preventing supplies from reaching freedom fighters and to prevent news about atrocities from being leaked. Trade agreements governed by regional unaccountable bureaucracies will only increase isolation as critical components for weapons, ammunition, and rare earth minerals continue to be heavily regulated, ensuring supplies are prevented from reaching those that would use it to secure independence. Censorship has also received a large step forward courtesy of big tech. And five, to exploit tribal antagonisms to extend communist hegemony. This is also known as divide and conquer the people by getting them fighting amongst themselves so they cannot see the dark tyranny being developed just outside of their view. 
Look around today. Americans are divided regarding race, class, political party, and opportunity. Look to see who is fomenting these divisions, and you'll see it's linked to organized groups of socialists and communists, not to mention various global elites. There is so much more that could be said, but understand that we are in a fatal struggle for freedom against slavery. So while we watch Afghanistan once again fall to enemies, as created by American money, realize that we are seeing, or what we are seeing has been planned. The global chess pieces are still being reset using either real or in most cases contrived crises that allow the insider elites to advance their new world order agenda. The John Birch Society has stood in the way of that agenda since 1958. The troubling times that many Americans struggle to define and make sense of are not of any surprise to our organization. We've tracked this movement for decades and recognized their strategies and tactics. While Afghanistan burns, realize that this could be America. The communist and globalist agenda has been greatly advanced in the last 24 months right in our own country. But it's not all doom and gloom. If we didn't think we had a chance at winning this, we would certainly tell you. Join the John Birch Society today to work with others on an agenda that will help and does help to safeguard American freedom and independence and restores lost rights and liberties. We can do this with your help, but this only works if you get involved. What you do or don't do today will have large consequences for all Americans in the future. For the short term, the next three years can either be spent working actively against the agenda on your feet or at some point in the future spent on your knees in slavery. It really is that simple. Links are in the video description. I'm Bill Hahn for the John Birch Society. Until next time, stay informed, stay active, and be bold, patriots.